Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. Welcome to Always Searching. My guest today serves as the senior advisor to the director at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. He's also served as a United States Public Health Service Officer in the CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service. He's had a fascinating career, and I often consider him the original Ebola hunter. He's a medical historian and the editor of my book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health. Welcome to Always Searching, Dr. David Morenz. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be with you. It's wonderful to be with you as well. We've known each other for many years, so I'm going to call you David. And we have so much that we can talk about. We've had incredible conversations over the years. You're the person I always call when something is popping up in the news that we need to be concerned about regarding our public health and certainly regarding infectious diseases. As we've been navigating COVID-19, you've been at the forefront and center. So we will talk about that. But I first want our guests to know who Dr. Morenz is. David, how did you get into medicine and why did you choose infectious diseases? You know, I, uh, I backed into medicine. I uh, had no intention uh, of being a doctor or being in infectious diseases. I thought I, as a child and as a teenager, I thought I'd be an artist of some kind, a writer, poet, uh, a songwriter. I played rock and roll music in high school and wrote hundreds of songs, and I thought that's the way I would go. But that didn't seem practical. And once I got to college and I was a psychology major, everybody told me I was um, you know, headed for a, a career of pushing a broom in McDonald's. So um, in my senior year of college, somebody said, give up on being a psychologist. Uh, you could be a psychiatrist and go to medical school. So on a whim, literally on a whim, at the end of uh, my junior, beginning of my senior year in college, I applied to medical school, got there, realized that the psychiatrists were crazy. And bottom line is, after four years of medical school and residency, I ended up in infectious diseases, trying to find a way out of the, out of the forest of not having a career. But I, I found that I liked it. When I got into infectious diseases, I really loved that. So it was just a, an eye-opening thing. I, you know, bumped into it, started doing it, and, you know, that was the end. The rest was my career. You know, it's always interesting how we choose particular disciplines. For me, I chose endocrinology because it was like this giant puzzle and all the pieces fit so brilliantly together. Why did you choose infectious diseases? Were you intrigued by how the body's impacted by viruses and parasites and bacteria? Or was there something else that you really thought? Well, I think it was the idea of discovery. I realized, you know, I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect, I realized that uh, what really um, gets me going is... um, discovery of new things. And um, there are tens of thousands of infectious diseases. There are always new ones. Each one is a different puzzle. And um, it's, you know, being in infectious diseases is kind of like being an explorer and a discoverer, like Christopher Columbus or, you know, the the, uh, great explorers of the 17th and 18th century. You just get to discover things, things that are new, things that are not seen before. And you have to, you know, reinvent the wheel for every new disease. And I thought that was just, I thought, and I still think that's just, just the most exciting thing to be, to have new challenges. And, and uh, you know, every time you think you've 
partially solved an old one, a new one comes along, and you have to go at it all over again. Um, that's what I really like. So it fits perfectly with the title of this podcast, Always Searching. You're always searching for the next adventure. And I think of, when I think about you, I think about 1976. And it's not just because it was the 200th anniversary of a signing of our Declaration of Independence, but that was a really important year in your career. I mean, you were encountering so much when you joined the CDC from Legionella, Legionnaire's disease, Ebola, uh, dengue fever. Can you tell us a little bit about your life at the CDC and how you got there? Well, you know, I am. Um, I was doing a uh, a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases. I had finished my residency in pediatrics and was studying pediatric infectious diseases. And um, for my second year of residency, there was some possible issue of funding of the residency, and the and the um, uh, you know my mentor at the time um, suggested that as a backup plan to be able to have a job and training. I applied to CDC to the e, so-called EIS program, Epidemic Intelligence Service, you mentioned a minute ago. I didn't even know what that was, but uh, I thought uh, I should apply to it with no interest and no knowledge of what it was. And I applied to it, and lo and behold, I got accepted. And I went there kind of not knowing what to expect, because this was epidemiology. It wasn't really medical infectious diseases. But once I got there, it was just the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life. And as you said, in the first year of my being there, there was swine in 1976, there was swine flu, there was Ebola, there was Legionnaire's disease, there began to be a Caribbean-wide dengue epidemic and various other things. And I just spent those two years as an EIS scientist, um, jumping from one exciting thing to another. And that just really set the stage for everything that's happened since. It was a it was the most exciting time hardworking, um, you know, but every day I was learning things and having new experiences. And um, I think just um, growing and developing in, in a direction that I hadn't even imagined. So take us a little bit behind the scenes. You know, everyone has seen the the photos of CDC on the outside, and sometimes you see so-called war room. But what was it really like to work with these very dangerous pathogens? We used to be afraid of Ebola, if you remember all those horror movies about people dying from hemorrhagic fever. But you were there on the front lines when we were just starting to understand what Ebola could do to us. So what was this like? What was your life like? You know, it's a, I mean, it sounds maybe funny to some people, but I never really worried about those things. Um, mm. uh, you know, in the Ebola epidemic, I was in a supportive role, not actually, you know, in danger of dying from treating patients in the field. But, you know, a few years later, I lived for two years in the upcountry area, the jungles of West Africa, studying loss of fever, another hemorrhagic mm -hmm. fever like Ebola. And um, in, in, in that instance, I was living in the midst of the epidemic and treating patients and exposing myself all the time. But it never really, um, you know, I never really thought about what happens if I got infected and became seriously ill. Maybe it was in the back of my mind. But, you know, when you're doing something that's exciting and you're working very hard seven days a week, you just don't think about those things. So, it wasn't on my radar screen that I could have gotten infected and died, even though four members of our team did get infected. You know, the, the excitement of it and the challenge and the intellectual challenge of trying to understand it were in the front of my mind, not the risk. And I've never, 
I've never actually, all the things I've done and all the hemorrhagic fevers and all the countries mm-hmm. I've worked in, I've never really thought much about or worried much about the risks. Now, when you say you haven't thought about it, certainly you thought about it every time you, you know, you you donned your PPE and you went out. Um, did you ever have any near misses, any dangerous moments when you thought, oh no, this is it, I've just gotten infected? No, I, I never did myself, but um, I mean, I did get infected with dengue fever when I was in Singapore once, but that was, you know, not going to be a fatal disease. I certainly had friends that were exposed and had to go into quarantine and had to go in the slammer for various infections that occurred in the lab. And some of them got sick and some of them seriously sick, but it, but it never happened to me. You know, I always know it. I always knew it could happen, but I don't know what it is. You know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily sort of a gung-ho person who denies reality, but it's just, <laughs> you know, I can't say what it is. I didn't worry about it for myself. I worried about others. But um, I don't know. I, you know, there, there may be, I mean, you're asking me a question that I can't answer. I've never really thought about it. Yeah. So here's another one. So in 1976, you're dealing at, you know, the CDC. You're a little bit younger than you were in, you know, 2014 when you went over to Africa again when we had another Ebola outbreak. How was that different for, for you? Was there more of that thought about sort of life and death issues? And, you know, certainly it was on the news every day. So people, I think, were much more aware of some of the risks. You know, again, I didn't really think much about life and death issues. Um, you know, by the time I went to West Africa in 2015, it was, I think, you know, we had some preliminary treatments that might or might not work. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know that, um, you know, some of those uh, are potentially effective, the vaccine and, uh, and some therapies, but we didn't really know that at the time. But I guess, you know, part of it is that when you understand infectious diseases, you understand what you can do to prevent yourself from getting them. And, and none of those things that you can do, these are things that everybody knows, you know, uh, you know, wearing masks and, um, right. um, you know, never touching yourself above the neck and always washing your hands and those kind of things. Um, when, when you know those things and it's ingrained in you what those are, you don't think you're immune from getting infected, but you know that your chances are greatly diminished. And um, I think that that... Um, you know, I didn't really worry very much. Uh, it, you know, it crossed my mind occasionally, but if you let if you let these things cross your mind, it paralyzes you. So you just have to, mm-hmm. um, you know, do the best you can to be safe and hope that everything goes well. And that, you know, and it's never, as I said, I've never, with the exception of getting dengue once in uh, Singapore, I've never really, never really had a, a an accident. And the dengue, the dengue I had was relatively mild. Most dengue cases are. Um, it can be fatal, but, you know, most, most cases are not fatal. And mine was, I would say, on the, on the scale of dengue illnesses from one to 10, mine was probably a three. So that was mm. a pretty minor one. You know, it's interesting. We, we tend to do things that are somewhat risky, and I guess it's sort of built into being a physician. But later I learned some of our family and friends are terrified for us. I went from New York City. I was at Bellevue during the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, we called it, I think it was HTLV3. I don't even think we even called it AIDS at the time. And then I went over to San Francisco. I was at UCSF and San Francisco General. And, you know, it was just sort of our day-to-day operation. And you just, like you said, you just do what you need to do. And I remember once having a needle stick 
and it finally dawned on me, oh, now I kind of understand why yeah. my family's yeah. afraid because we didn't have a lot of phenomenal treatments at the time and it was a death sentence at that time. Yeah, so, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, you know, I was uh, part of the CDC team that mm-hmm. dealt with AIDS in the very beginning in 1981 and 1982. And I did have a colleague who had a an exposure from a fractured vial in a centrifuge. Mm. And it crossed my mind at that time, because, you know, at that time, we didn't even know what HIV was. Right. Assumed, right. We assumed it was a virus, but we didn't know that mm-hmm. yet until a couple of years later. Um, and, and it did cross my mind. What if that happened to me? What if I stuck myself with a needle or a broken right. vial or something or aerosolized virus, which, you know, at the time we didn't know that, you know, whether or not that would affect you. It did cross my mind. But, um, you know. Um, as I said, maybe I was lucky. I don't know, but um, I didn't worry much about it, and I didn't have any truly dangerous exposures that could have put my life at risk. Not well, that I and, know of, at least. It's in perhaps that's the best part. Not that you know of. So you have this interesting journey. You you go from Michigan, which you know can have some lovely winters. You migrate to Hawaii have an incredible life there. And then you find your way back here uh, stateside in Washington, D.C. at the NIH. How did you end up coming to the NIH? How did you end up working with Dr. Anthony Fauci? It's been several decades now. Can you tell us how you got there? I was a professor and chairman. I was a tenured professor and chairman, department chairman at the University of Hawaii. The, uh, in, you know, all the time I was in academia, I had worked closely with NIH. I had been a, uh, I'd sat on their study sections, I'd chaired their study sections, I'd had NIH grants. So NIH knew me, and yeah. um, I had many friends and colleagues there. And I, and I knew, I had known Tony Fauci since I met him when I was at CDC in 1982, at the very beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So Tony's um, deputy director, John LaMontagne, the late John LaMontagne, he died in about 2003. Um, knew me, and he started to recruit me. And um, he said, you know, basically, why don't you come to NIH? You know, I was working a lot with NIH anyways. I was doing a lot of NIH work and taking NIH money for grants. So, you know, I wasn't really inclined to do that, but he kept uh, in kind of insisting. And finally, you know, he kind of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And he basically said, if you come to NIH, We'll create a job for you, hands down. Um, just show up, and you're going to have a job. Um, and you don't have to apply. You don't have to um, do anything. You don't have to fill out any papers. Just come. He literally said, get on an airplane and show up here, and you've got a job. He didn't That's tell me what job was, but So I did. <laughs> I came to NIH. And um, and I did various things to learn how the NIH system works. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it, that morphed into, in a few years, being the science advisor for Tony Fauci. And I've done that ever since. And, you know, it just, again, everything in my life, I sort of backed into it. It sort of all happened by osmosis without any formal plan, without me having an idea what I want to do. I just sort of keep myself open to opportunities. And if somebody says, here's an opportunity, what does it look like to you? I might say, you know, that looks pretty good. I'll give it a try. 
I think you're hitting on something important. That's being open to opportunities. But some of the challenges that folks face is that they're often not given those opportunities. They don't have those mentors. They don't have those sponsors. They don't have those champions. What did you do to get that? Or did it just sort of by osmosis come to you? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think, I mean, I guess I would say this is looking back in retrospect. I would say that a lot of people try to plan their career with a strategy. I'm going to do this right. and then I'm going to do that. And then I want to apply to be the chairman. And then I want to, you know, I never had any of those thoughts. I always, uh, I always followed what was interesting. And if something was interesting, it didn't occur to me whether that was good for my career, whether I'd make a lot of money, whether I'd rise up the ladder of something. If it was interesting and exciting, then I would do it and make the best of it. And I guess I always thought that if you're doing what you love, you're more likely to do it well. And if you do it well, you're more likely to get rewarded for it. Yeah, and the rewards come from following what your North Star is. So I think that's sort of an important pearl of wisdom that you need to follow what's in your heart. So what has life been like working with Dr. Fauci? You know, pre-COVID, during your COVID years here, what, what, have, what have you been going through? You know, it's, um, I would say I have a good job. It's not always good, but it's most of it's good. And, you know, as Tony's science advisor, you know, I, that, I do that. That's my job. But it's not, it doesn't take up all day, every day. And when I'm not advising Tony about science, I am um, doing other things. I'm mostly working with some of our laboratory-based science scientists doing molecular research in mostly in respiratory viruses like flu and now SARS-CoV-2. And uh, I'm working with a team of really great scientists who are, among other things, trying to develop vaccines, trying to understand the pathogenesis of disease. And to me, that's really the most rewarding thing I do because, you know, being a, sort of a senior guy, I get to be um, kind of the, um, uh, what would I say? I mean, the sort of the thought person or the, the um, um, sort of the senior, um, sort of like, you know, sort of like a, a conductor of an orchestra that I, I help conduct the orchestra, but I don't play the instruments. I don't go into the laboratory and do the experiments. I discuss with the scientists how to do the experiments, how to interpret the data, um, what the findings mean, what are the next steps. And, and that's an easy thing for me to do. But the people I work with who are, you know, way smarter than me don't have the perspective to do that. So it's a great match. I get to, you know, I, I work with really talented scientists who are very smart and they have incredible skills that I don't have, but they don't necessarily know how to put it all together. And I can say, you know, this is how we put it all together. Let's do this. Let's right. do that. Let's analyze the data. This is what it means. What do you think about that? And um, it's just a sort of a win-win situation. And I really, it's very gratifying to me because at my age, you know, most people, I mean, science is a young person's game. Most people in science, by the time they're age 40 or 50, are kind of out of it. They go into administration because they don't have the, you know, the intense sort of brain skills to be a scientist. But, um, but I'm able to continue to be, I think, make a contribution because while I don't have the you know, older as, as you get older, you lose the sort of the intense focus and uh, the skills that younger scientists have. I have perspective and wisdom and experience that younger people don't have, and it just all works. 
So you mentioned SARS-CoV-2, our favorite virus of the day, except I think monkeypox is gaining a little traction. And of course, that's the virus that's associated with COVID-19. Now, I remember contacting you in early 2020 um, after I had seen some reports coming out of Asia and it just, it didn't look good. And um, I was also a senior advisor to uh, at HHS and to the chief health medical officer at NASA for over 18 years. So part of my role was to always keep an eye out for what was coming so that we could be as best prepared for when it, you know, finally arrived on our shores. And so that, that type of skill set never leaves you. And I remember contacting you in early 2020 and we had a really interesting discussion. And I remember you saying this virus is going to be with us for ever. Can you tell me and, and our listeners why you thought that? And now, you know, as we advance two years later, have your thoughts changed about SARS-CoV-2, our, our favorite coronavirus? <laughs> I have to say before answering <laughs> your question, it's not my favorite virus. Uh, I wish it would go away. but um, Our I favorite know. virus, right. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe uh, the caveat is maybe it's our least favorite virus. But you know, I think it's because I'm a virologist and epidemiologist. I, you know, I sort of know how these things work. I've seen a lot of infections and a lot of epidemics and pandemics come and they never go. Mm -hmm. They always come, but they don't go. But they they change and um, the viruses mutate. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess the way to answer your question, I've seen this movie before and I know how it ends. And it ends not with a bang, but with a whimper and the we hope it ends with a whimper, but uh, we don't know yet where this is going. But I think that, um, the, you know, the fact that once the cat got out of the bag, the fact that we were going to have it forever, you know, is is a certainty based on, you know, the knowledge that I and others have of how viral diseases that appear, that spread, that become pandemic play out. And um, oh. as to where exactly it's going to go, I can't predict, nor can anybody. But I think what I can predict is that the virus will be with us indefinitely and that hopefully, not certainly, but hopefully, over time, hopefully sooner rather than later, it will begin to become end endemic, meaning that it will be with us forever. But instead of causing these enormous pandemic waves that um, uh, are associated with increases in uh, severe illnesses and death, will become more like seasonal influenza where, you know, every periodically, every season, or if not seasonally, periodically, SARS-CoV-2 just keeps coming through the population with a different variant and causes some deaths, but the extreme mortality will diminish. That's what I hope, but there's no certainty to this because we've never seen a coronavirus pandemic before and we cannot assume anything. We cannot assume it will be like flu I mean, it seems to be like flu in certain aspects, but we can't be sure that it will mimic flu in other important ways. And so, you know, we have to be prepared for anything can happen. And, and then preparation is certainly key, but what really concerns me right now is long COVID, post-acute COVID syndrome, and there's so much that we need to learn about it. And I know NIH is playing a, a very important role. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research uh, studies that are underway and what you think long COVID is going to eventually um, evolve into in regard to a, a major crisis and catastrophe for the public health service? Or you think we're going to get control of it? Well, for, so first of all, um, nobody knows really what long COVID is, but it appears to be not one thing, but many things 
that are complications or after effects of having a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And there are many different things. You know, there are neurologic things, there are cardiac things, um, there are constitutional things. And, um, you know, basically, we don't know what the cause is. It's, it's possibly that because they're different things, it's possibly things that result from virus damage to various tissues, but also immune responses to the virus damage that cause what we call immunopathology, mm-hmm. disease caused by the immune response to something. And, um, you know, if, so, you know, how this is going to play out, you know, if we were lucky, all these long COVID things would eventually go away and, for people who have long COVID a year or two or three years from now, it'll all be gone and they'll be fine. But, you know, my fear is that that's not the case, that as mm-hmm. was the case 104 years ago in 2018 with the 1918 mm-hmm. influenza virus, uh, at one year after infection, many people had severe complications. We didn't call it long flu, but it was similar. And, um, and, and as far as we know, most of those people never got better or never got all better. So, you know, we're, it's, it, I mean, the, the answer to your question, only time will tell if, if it does tell. But, you know, my, my fear is that, um, as, you, as you intimated a minute ago, long COVID will be a problem that'll be with some victims of it for the rest of their lives and will change their lives and will be causing long-term chronic disease and morbidity and possibly even late fatalities. We don't know that, but uh, I would say that what we've seen so far after two and a half years of COVID-19 is not promising that these long COVID problems are going to magically get better. You know, I feel like we're living a tale of two cities. You have one camp where people are really meticulous about masking, thinking about social distancing, all the public health measures you mentioned. And then you have the other where pandemic just no longer exists and they're out and about carrying on enjoying life. And it's just such a strange disconnect. I'm on the other camp where I'm concerned about long COVID and I always have my mask around my neck. What are we doing I don't want to say necessarily wrong, but why is there this disconnect where either it's black or white, where people are not getting the messages that you may not die from it right now, but there could be long-term consequences? You know, I mean, I think that uh, I'm not qualified to answer that question because I think the answer is not in the realm of virology or epidemiology or public health. It's in the realm of psychology and psychopathology. And you know, it's a, you know, there's a, there's, there, there's a part of human nature that is always anti-authoritarian and, um, mm-hmm. uh, and into magical thinking and magical beliefs. And, and that's part of human nature. But we li- we're living in an era now in which, because in, in part because of social media and the internet, um, false information and anti-authoritarian, anti-authoritarian information is just running wild. And I think that crazy talk trumps reality and uh, trumps real information. And, um, you know, I think a large, you know, because I I talk a lot to the public and to the media, I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm overwhelmed with the realization that a large percentage of the public not only is not accepting authoritative public health and medical information, but is actively resisting it 
as if it's a threat to their um, identity and their control over their lives. And, you know, I've used the analogy before. I might have mentioned it to you, Sarah, in private. But, um, I, you know, I was around in 1963 when the United mm -hmm. States Surgeon General determined, based on the science, that cigarettes caused heart disease and lung cancer. And the Surgeon General, I think it was Luther Terry, uh, as I recall, whoever was the Surgeon General, though, insisted that cigarettes have a warning label put on the package saying smoking can be dangerous to your health. And when that happened, I remember this fairly clearly, there was no resistance to that information. Even smokers realized it was true. Nobody mm -hmm. said, we don't believe what the Surgeon General says. Um, they believed it. And uh, that was the beginning of the decrease in smoking prevalence in the United States. Now, we still have a long way to go with smoking. Too many people smoke. But it's a lot better now than it was back in 1963 because people believe the science. But that's not the era we lived in now. If this was 1963 and the Surgeon General said smoking is bad for your health, 50% of the population said, would say, you know, BS. We not only don't believe that, we're going to smoke more and to help with the Surgeon General fire them. Yeah. It's the world we live in now. Well, you know, you you were the editor, one of the editors of my book, and I wrote that around 2009, 2010, and that was during the time of that H1N1 pandemic. We remember those other good old oh, yeah. days, you know, the old swine flu. And, and at the time, I was looking at the political, the psychosocial, the economic impact that shaped our health decisions. And I feel like I could just write that book right now because you see that. As some of our politicians have said, the pandemic's basically over, enjoy life businesses want to stay open. And then you've talked about some of the psychopathology and the psychosocial aspects. Do you ever see us coming back to a time when we're going to be knighted as a nation where we're going to address what's in front of us so that we can get out of this with minimal damage or less damage? You know, if I put on my optimist hat, I would say that the pendulum always swings back and forth and it'll eventually swing the other way. But I have to admit, mm -hmm. I don't see it happening now. You know, in the last, particularly the last six years, and even before then, there's just, um, we're, we're living in a time, an anti-authoritarian time where people resent, they see experts, you know, technical experts, people who have knowledge, particularly in science, as mm -hmm. not only not believable, but as evil people who oppose them. And so... As I said, with the, you know, in the Surgeon General analogy with smoking a minute ago, what happens now is when experts, the Surgeon General, the head of the World Health Organization, um, other health experts, the head of the American Medical Association, when they mm -hmm. say something is good for your health, there's an immediate and sometimes angry, violent resistance to that message because it's an, it's an authoritarian message. And people... Basically, people are listening to social media and they say, mm -hmm. you don't know anything that I can't find out by going on Facebook and listening to what my cousin's friend says. You know, right. they accept the they accept the non-expert information that comes from people they know, from the expert information from experts who they don't personally know. And uh, it, it's and this is fed by social media and I don't see that they're, they're that this is abating anytime soon. People, you know, people, you know, if you think about it, 
Social media is really dangerous for this reason, because it's easy to access information on, on the internet and on social media. If you were to Google, if you were to go to your computer and Google danger, uh, go, uh, use, uh, punch in the terms vaccine safety, you're going to find a lot more wacky, crazy people talking about vaccines causing autism. You're much more likely to find that than you will going to the, getting a link to go to the WHO or the CDC website. And then when you add social media like Facebook to it, you realize that, um, you know, people uh, using social media are mostly connected to their friends, you know, and their family and whatever. And, um, you know, their friends are connected to their friends and their friends are connected to other friends. There's a whole chain of people who are not experts. And if you if you get a if you get a Facebook post from your very best friend or your cousin or whatever, somebody you trust, you've known them all your life. And they say, you know, vaccines are bad for you or the CDC is lying or whatever. Um, you're likely to trust them because, you know, don't know anything about CDC. You don't even know how to get to the website. But if your best friend said that, it must be true because, you know, they would never lie to you. But the problem is everybody's in a loop that's connected to, you know, A to B, B to C, C to D. Don't go very far down the loop. And there's somebody you don't know and have never heard of. It's very easy for the wrong information to get in there accidentally um, or even purposely. And then that information eventually gets to you coming from somebody you really trust. But it's the wrong information. And um, this is a really dangerous thing that's poisoning the flow of uh, expert information that people receive and access. So, David, you talk about dangerous. Dr. Fauci's talked about some of the death threats that he and his family have received. Have you also received any kind of threats? I've received threats, too, but not nearly as much as many of my colleagues, and certainly not Dr. Fauci, uh, who's received, you know, horrible threats. And some of my friends have received, you know, just threats that are just as bad. I want to mention to you, and I've received those threats, some of those threats, too, not not so many that, that I would want to even, you know, draw attention to it, but I, w I would say that there was a study done last year in which uh, scientists who are knowledgeable about SARS-CoV-2 around the world, and I don't, I don't remember the details, I might be wrong, so I don't want to be quoted on this, but a certain number of scientists, hundreds of scientists who were experts on COVID-19 were surveyed, and something like 19% of them, that's almost 20%, almost one-fifth, had received death threats for communicating truthful information about the dangers and the, uh, you know, the uh, things you can do to prevent SARS-CoV-2. So this is a, you know, this, this threat against scientists is a nation, is an international thing and it's orchestrated. It's, this is not, you know, one individual in a basement doing this. These are groups of people who spend enormous amounts of time and money attacking scientists to discredit them and to credit fake theories. It's almost as if we could have another show on that. And, you know, <laughs> I often see you as a, a medical historian. If you could end this show, what would be your favorite quote for our listeners, for our team of explorers? My favorite quote, I don't, I'm not thinking of a favorite quote, but I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, the, the probably the most important mission, message I could give is, if you're really interested in understanding health risks and health issues and things you can do to prevent 
yourself from becoming infected or ill or severely ill from diseases like COVID-19 and influenza and Ebola and all the other things, do not ever, ever, under any circumstances, believe without question anything you hear on social media or from untrusted internet sources. If you really care and really want to be responsible, find out what the authoritative sources are and go to those sources only. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, World Health Organization, um, the uh, American Medical Association, your county health department, your state health department, they all have websites. That's where you should go. Anything else is likely to be tainted or contaminated. There's a high risk of it. Don't even go there. Well, I'd like to add to the list our podcast, Always Searching, will be uh, in that absolutely. list of respected sources of information. And on that note, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for serving on the front lines for so many decades to try to help us stay safe, to help us understand what is in front of us and how to prepare for what could be coming. So thank you so much, Dr. Morenz. We so appreciate your time. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great to talk to you again. Thank you. And until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching.